Welcome to Hacking the Self. I'm Adrian Baker. Today is the second episode on the topic of mindfulness and addiction. And I, I really see this as part of a larger theme of, you know, I've been doing this in a series of conversations on, on yoga. It's how do we bring yoga off of our mat into the real world? How do in a similar thing for meditation, you know, how do you incorporate the gains of a meditation retreat? or your daily practice into your day-to-day life. You can think about that in secular terms. You can also think it about, for those of you who identify as Buddhists or resonate with those teachings, You know, how do you make the Dharma relevant to the concerns of our time in our day-to-day worlds? Conversation with Lama Rod Owens definitely touched on that very heavily. And of course, this is also a theme of pretty much all the episodes I've done on psychedelics, which are an integration. So it's really within this larger theme of making contemplative practices relevant for our daily lives and also connecting them to modern science and explaining the benefits in those terms, or at least using what we know about modern science to explain what we know experientially and subjectively are extremely effective practices. So today's guest is really an ideal one to talk about this area of mindfulness and addiction. Dr. Judson Brewer, MD and PhD, is a thought leader in the field of habit change and the science of mastery. Combining with nearly 20 years of experience with mindfulness training and scientific research, He is the Director of Research at the Center for Mindfulness and Associate Professor in Medicine and Psychiatry at UMass Medical School. He's also a research affiliate at MIT and adjunct faculty at Yale. He has published numerous peer-reviewed articles and book chapters, trained U.S. Olympic coaches, and his work has been featured on 60 Minutes, TED Med, Time, Forbes, BBC, NPR, Business Week, and others. So Dr. Brewer really is someone who incorporates rigorous scientific training with a really strong personal background in meditation practice. And, you know, towards the beginning of our conversation, he really talks about what led him to meditation practice when he was a student in medical school. So I'll let him tell that story. But he really is someone who integrates both these paths, and I think he's he's done so well professionally because it's been so relevant for him personally. He was extremely generous with his time, in addition to being knowledgeable and really just delightful to talk to. So I thank him for his time. I really enjoyed the conversation. I'm sure that you will as well. And now I give you my conversation with Dr. Judson Brewer. Your continued support makes future episodes possible. You can help by heading over to patreon.com slash hacking the self. Well, Judson, let me just start out by thanking you so much for your time. I have read some of your research in your book and listened to several of your talks and really excited to be talking with you. So thank you. Oh, thanks for having me. So, you know, I've read a bit about your introduction in the bio to excuse me, I read a bit about your bio in the introduction for our guest, but I'm just wondering if we can start out with you elaborating a little bit on your 
you know, professional background and just giving a little context to your current research interest at the Center of Mindfulness and Addiction? It all started with me becoming an expert in suffering. <laughs> As in, I was suffering myself. Uh, started meditating, you know, my first day of medical school. Uh, so, was not very interested in researching this stuff, but was interested in trying to help myself suffer a bit less. And in the meantime, I tripped into something that was vast and wild, and I had no idea what was coming. And over the course of about 10 years of personal practice, I shifted from just studying my own mind to dedicating my entire career to studying habit formation and how we can help people change and get out of the cycle of suffering around addictions. And how did you stumble across meditation? You know, I don't remember the specific details. I do remember doing a lot of backpacking in college and really feeling at home out in the wilderness and feeling pulled just to be quiet. And I read part of uh, John Kabat-Zinn book, Full Catastrophe Living, and started listening to the cassette tapes uh, right at the beginning of medical school as a way to start kind of a DIY meditation. Very cool. By the way, I heard in a previous interview, you mentioned that you were in St. Louis for medical school. Were you at WashU by chance? I was. I grew up about 15 minutes from there. Oh, great. <laughs> Yeah, I was yeah. in their MD-PhD program. Very cool. And so, your PhD is in what specifically? Yeah, immunology, actually. I was very okay. fascinated by why we get sick when we get stressed out. That's right. Or I heard that in a previous interview, you know, how you started out your interest was in the impact of stress on health, which I, I thought that was very interesting because there's certainly a very significant role from what I've read that stress can play in addiction. Absolutely. And so I'm wondering if that sort of led you there as well. So I was doing a bunch of, you know, genetic mouse modeling around stress and, you know, immune function. And that was interesting, but it ultimately didn't answer the question around, you know, how can we actually help people? And I think I was moving more and more toward, you know, how can I try to make a little dent in this huge universe of suffering that we have and so shifted from mouse work to studying neuroscience and clinical studies and you know at the same time I was in my psychiatry residency training and was learning from my patients their own language around addiction and they were speaking the same language that historical buddha was speaking and that that to me could not have been a coincidence and so I really decided to dive headfirst into studying addictions and really trying to understand addictions from a neurobiologic perspective and from a behavioral perspective. Say more about that. What kind of language were they using and how did that parallel to the language the Buddha used for folks in the audience who might not be familiar with, you know, basic tenets of Buddhism? Craving, clinging, getting caught up in suffering you know, those were the words that they were using and they were virtually identical to the words that I was learning in, uh, you know, about the ancient Buddhist psychology. Right. 
You know, I'm curious, just before we pre- proceed a little more into your research, I'm curious just kind of what your own meditation journey looked like. You know, were you doing long, intensive, silent retreats? You know, what, what was sort of the nature of your practice and your training in meditation? Well, I started, you know, very humbly, just half an hour a day listening to cassette tapes. And then I started doing it, adding in, you know, meditating during boring medical school lectures and then found a teacher, started going on half-day retreats, then full-day weekends, then week-long. Uh, and by the time, I would say about 10, 15 years later, you know, I was doing month-long silent retreats. So, just ramped it up. You know, I'm kind of a thick-headed kind of guy where, it's, you know, if I do something, I want to do it all the way. Yeah, I can relate to that. You know, I'm curious to get your take on something. I've I've actually been reading this book called Pointing Out the Great Way by Daniel Brown. Are you familiar with him? He's a Harvard psychologist. We actually collaborate on research. <laughs> we just finished a study with a bunch of his meditators. I've gone on his retreats. Yeah, great guy. Oh, interesting. Okay. So, you know, I've studied with Theravada and Mahayana teachers, and this would be a great question to ask you since I... You've obviously done both as well since you've studied with Daniel. You know, he's talked about what he kind of calls the odometer theory of meditation. This idea that if you just rack up enough mileage yet, you know, there'll be a pretty direct relationship with the level of your awakening and your intensive retreat experience. And he kind of seems to have a a criticism of that. And I'm, I'm sure he believes there's value in retreats up to a point, but he seems to think that they're really limited uh gains and he from what i can tell he focuses his training you know more on just kind of week long where you're learning a technique and then you're implementing it and i'm just curious in your own experience or from what you observe in in patients what do you think of that kind of argument do you think that the longer retreats are actually absolutely essential do you think they experience diminishing returns at a certain point what's your take on that uh here i would look to the sage Vince Lombardi, <laughs> who is, a you know, they have the trophy at the Super Bowl. It's called the Lombardi Trophy. He was the guy that won the first Super Bowl before there was a Super Bowl. He has this saying, practice doesn't make perfect, perfect practice makes perfect. And, you know, you could go on retreat for your entire life, but if you're not practicing correctly, you've probably not made as many gains as if you'd been practicing correctly. <laughs> so, so, I think there's a lot to be said about both where if we can make sure people are practicing well, then any moment that they practice is going to be more useful. And so, then if you take that and go on a long retreat, if you're practicing perfectly, that's a very different story than if you're not practicing perfectly or as perfectly as possible. And, you know, as humans, we learn via feedback. And so, it's helpful to get, you know, teacher's feedback at the beginning. And then it's as we start to calibrate our own experience and we can trust it more, at least to the limits of our own known experience, we can follow that. But often, I I see that that can be helpful to an extent and then you get um, more instruction or more pointing out, as Dan calls it. And then, you know, go work with that. I think both, you know, getting the proper practice, but also logging those hours moment to moment, 
uh, those two seem to be synergistic to me. Right. That makes sense. Thank you for that answer. You know, I know you've talked before about your, uh, your background's mostly in Theravada and just acknowledging up front, you know, I think different flavors kind of work for everyone, but I'm just curious for you personally working with Theravada practices of, you know, insight meditation versus say working with some of the Mahayana Mahamudra techniques that you, you learn with Dan, do you have a particular inclination towards one style of practice versus another? And if so, why? I think at the beginning of my practice, and this is just for me personally, <laughs> you know, there were a number of practices that were tremendously helpful. So I remember doing a phase of just hardcore noting practice like Mahasi Saito style, and that was tremendously helpful and insightful. I remember doing a phase of uh, concentration practice where I was really focusing on, you know, some absorptive concentration techniques. And that was probably one of the most transformative periods of time in terms of really seeing how it's, it's about bringing conditions together rather than forcing practice. And more recently, you know, just touching into that non-striving kind of resting in awareness or, you know, all these different words for it that people describe, you know, the non-meditation meditation, meditation, so to speak, or the non-meditating. It's really hard to describe what that is, but I think that's much more in alignment with what Dan teaches and, and some of these other Dzogchen practices are that seems to be resonating most with me right now. Right. And certainly different stages of the journey, different phases are going, different practices will resonate. You know, that makes sense. I was just curious about that. Yeah, that was certainly the case yeah. for me. Thank you for sharing that personal journey. So yeah, let's talk, um, let's, you know, move on to talk about your research. Uh, perhaps you can kind of sketch out specifically, you know, what your lab has been researching with respect to mindfulness and addiction and how you approach that research. I've been taking a two-pronged approach. One is to understand the behavioral mechanisms underlying uh, habit formation and then applying that. I think of it as, you know, there's got to be some theory, a mechanistic theory. There's got to be a neurobiological pathway or mechanism that lines up with that. And then there have to be some outcomes that also line up. And if those three don't meet, if there's no meeting in the middle, then it makes me less confident that there is a there there. So, you know, it's interesting. I was starting to study just some of the early uh, operant conditioning models uh, in the modern day, you know, like uh, positive and negative reinforcement and things like that. And I started to see how those that theory was lining up pretty well with the Buddhist psychology around what was described as dependent origination. And those could be distilled down to basically seeing, you know, like if we're triggered by something and we do some type of a behavior and there's a result or in brain speak, a reward that seems to perpetuate the process. And so whether it was the ancient Buddhist psychology of dependent origination or modern day psychology of positive and negative reinforcement, that theory seemed to be lining up 
pretty nicely, or those theories were lining up nicely with each other. And those also provided testable hypotheses where we could look to see, can we help people be with the experience of an urge or a craving such that it could change their behavior through mindfulness practices. And indeed, you know, our first clinical studies, we were finding that mindfulness was working for alcohol and cocaine dependence. It was, you know, next study five times better than gold standard for smoking cessation. And so it seemed that there was a behavioral mechanism that was lining up with these theories and then also lining up with outcomes. You know, we were seeing smoking cessation that was pretty good. We were pretty happy with it. Uh, still early stage, but, you know, enough to move into next stages. And so we started designing digital therapeutics, like app-based trainings to see if we could deliver these with high fidelity in a way that would be disseminatable and developed our first eating program around the same type of mechanism and found, lo and behold, we're getting a 40% reduction in craving-related eating. We extended this even to anxiety. We created this app called Unwinding Anxiety. And in preliminary studies, looks like we're getting a close to a 50% reduction in clinically validated anxiety scales. So we're starting to see in habit after habit, whether it's smoking or emotional eating or even anxiety, that we're seeing some seeing this line up in different behaviors. So the theory is lining up with the behavioral mechanism, which is also giving us some pretty solid outcomes. So that's been one realm of research that's been going on now for yeah, about 10 years. We're seeing some consistent findings that are that are preliminary but promising. What were the other, you mentioned the gold standard, for example, in nicotine. You know, what was that gold standard? Was it cognitive behavioral therapy or, or what were the other treatments that were out there? We compared for our alcohol and cocaine dependent study, we compared it to cognitive behavioral therapy, classic standard, CBT, which is gold standard. And then in our smoking study, it's basically cognitive therapy. A, the American Lung Association has a program called Freedom from Smoking, which uses cognitive techniques to help people quit smoking. Now, I don't know a ton about you know cognitive behavioral therapy. I feel like you mentioned in the book that that basic model right, of trigger behavior reward doesn't that also kind of underlie the model for CBT as well? I'm just curious that the differences in terms of how these two approaches, mindfulness and CBT, work with that basic mechanism, yet why mindfulness seems to be more effective with some of these addictions than the other. One theory, if you look at cognitive behavioral therapy, you know, in a nutshell, and I had formal CBT training during residency, but it's been a while. So I think of it as, uh, and my apologies to the CBTers out there, good training, uh, good treatment, but I think of it as catch it, check it, change it. And so that's one of the ideas that summarizes cognitive behavioral therapy. If you can catch a cognition, you can check to see if it's true or not, or if it's accurate, and then you can change the cognition. So CBT is really about changing cognition. That's why it's called cognitive behavioral therapy that relies on the prefrontal cortex, one of the youngest part of our brains from an evolutionary perspective. And importantly, that part of the brain seems to be the first part of the brain that goes offline when we get stressed out. And stress is one of the biggest predictors of relapse. So it may not be that reliable 
in terms of really getting, you know, staying online when we need it. So changing cognition is what cognitive therapy is about. Mindfulness is really not about changing cognition. It's about changing our relationship to a cognition, a thought, an emotion, a body sensation, and seeing how we're pushing or pulling. You know, if it's if it's a pleasant sensation, are we trying to hold on to it? If it's an unpleasant sensation, are we trying to push it away? Same for thoughts. So it's not about changing anything. It's about noticing that push and pull and just simply being with that whatever's arising rather than doing something about it. You know, John Kabat-Zinn likes to talk about being rather than doing. So the two are pretty different in that respect. And my hypothesis is that mindfulness, we can actually hack that reward-based learning system itself simply through awareness and have that awareness help our brain learn what it would rather be doing. Let's use a simple example uh, with eating. You know, if we're stressed out, if that's the trigger, and then we eat some chocolate or some ice cream, and that's the behavior, and then the reward is this brief relief that feeds, <laughs> I guess, literally feeds a habit loop around eating ice cream when we're stressed out. But it doesn't actually fix the core root of the problem. And this is why the ancient Buddhists described this loop as samsara, as endless wandering, because it's we're just going to keep wandering and, and wondering why the hell it's not working. So, from that standpoint, if we substitute a different behavior, instead of eating ice cream, we simply get curious about what that craving to eat feels like or get curious about what that sensation of stress feels like. You, well, you tell me. What feels better, craving or curiosity? Curiosity. Okay. So, we've just hacked the reward-based learning system. We've found a reward that's more rewarding. And curiosity doesn't depend upon anything outside of us. It's always available. It's just a matter of tapping into it, of hacking it, of fostering it. And the ancient Buddhist psychologist even described that. It's described as, I'm going to liberally translate it, but interest or the second factor of awakening is Dhammavichaya, I think is the term, investigation. When we're curious about something, we actually turn toward it, even if it's unpleasant. So, we have the capacity to hack the system any moment that we want to. It's just a matter of, of doing it consistently. And that's really different than cognitive behavioral therapy. That's really tapping into the very deep-rooted learning processes uh, that our brain set up. You know that it's even it's really set up as a way to help us remember where food is. Yeah, it sounds very different. I mean, if cognitive behavioral therapy is about you're trying to change ultimately the behavior, but I mean to do that, you kind of you need to change the thoughts as well. It sounds like right. Yes. And if you look at reward-based learning, it's based on reward. It's not based on the behavior itself. So, I think we often think, oh, if I, you know, if I need to change a bad habit, I should just change a bad habit. Well, if it were that easy, we'd all change our bad habits. It's really about looking at how rewarding these habits actually are. And if we see very clearly that they're not rewarding, our brain's going to say, well, why would I do that? And if we find rewards that are more rewarding, our brain's going to say, mm, you know, give me some of that. But curiosity itself becomes the reward. It invites a feeling. Yeah. yeah. It feels good. Mm -hmm. The other thought I had as well, as you were describing it was, you know, a common thing that you're often taught in meditation instructions is that you really can't 
control the nature of the mind. You know, one of my teachers who recommended your book, Jack Cornfield, said, you know, the mind secretes thoughts like your pancreas secretes enzymes. You know, it's just it's just what it does. You know, so it's it's not about trying to change that. It's about witnessing that. And you know, when you started to talk about cognitive behavioral therapy, I was just starting to view that through a Buddhist lens and think, oh, well, yeah, that is a, a fundamentally different approach. You know, in fact, I think one lesson that I kind of take away from meditation, perhaps curious to get your take on this, is just you realize how little control you have over the thoughts that come into your awareness. You know, when you really start paying attention, you realize you'll, you'll get a thought and you'll think, well, where did that come from? You know, <laughs> isn't isn't Jack also well known for saying your thoughts are none of your business? <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think he does say that. I like that. <laughs> and that's what it's about. It's about noticing the thoughts and not getting caught up in them. Mm-hmm. You know, that's ultimately what it's about. And that's also, you know, interestingly, that's the next. Well, we can talk about this in a few minutes, but that's been one of the streams of research that we've also explored is around the neurobiology of this. And, and that caught upness is, was really the surprise finding for us. Yeah, go ahead. Let's go there now. I'd, I'd love to hear about that. If you think of, let's calibrate this a little bit and anybody listening to this can, can jump right in. So, if you had to put your experience, I'm going to ask you to kind of do a thought experiment with me and I'm going to ask you to put your experience in one of two buckets. Okay. So, and the buckets are going to be expansion versus contraction. Okay. So, a felt experience of expansion versus a felt experience of contraction. If you feel fear, does it feel contracted or expanded? Contracted. Yeah. If you feel joy, what bucket would you put it in? Expansion. How about anxiety? Contraction. How about curiosity? Expansion. Okay. So, just calibrating our own direct experience around that, there's a certain network of brain regions involved in self-reference. And of course, you know, whether you look at Buddhist psychology or even modern day psychology, everybody's fascinated about self. (laughs) Probably (laughs) because we all love ourselves. (laughs) We love to think about ourselves so much. Well, it turns out that this default mode network was actually discovered at Wash U uh, by Mark Rakel and his crew. And it was a serendipitous finding because they had given people the paradigm, which they were using as a control condition, ironically, uh, to lay still and not do anything in particular. And they would use this as a comparison condition against which they would you know, study their their active conditions. And they found that when people were lying still and not doing anything in particular, they were activating this certain brain region or this network of brain regions, which they later dubbed the default mode. And it turns out that they were basically thinking about themselves a lot. <laughs> and there's a part of that region, if you zoom in, there's a part of that network called the posterior cingulate cortex, which is one of the hubs of this default mode network. And we started looking at Uh, experienced meditators and novice meditators to see, you know, what their brains were doing when they were meditating. And it turns out that experienced meditators decrease activity in the posterior cingulate cortex compared to novices across a number of different types of meditation practices, which was really 
an interesting finding for us. We were not expecting to find that. We were looking for brain regions that were increasing in activity because I was naively thinking that, you know, when I'm meditating, I'm doing something. <laughs> what a naive view I had. <laughs> but that's okay. And I was wondering, why am I sweating through t-shirts in the middle of winter <laughs> trying to meditate? Well, Judd, <laughs> maybe you were trying a little too hard. So, you know, it's a little me search going on there trying to find that brain region that I must have been, you know, must have been huge in my brain because I was working so hard. <laughs> Later, it turned out that I was just trying too hard. That's about all it was doing. So, this this network of brain regions in particular, the posterior cingulate decreases in activity uh, in experienced versus novice meditators. And we were fascinated by that finding, like what's going on? And the best analogy I had at the time was it's kind of like uh, driving your car with one foot on the gas and one on, foot on the brake. And, you know, if you take your foot off the brake, your car drives much more efficiently. And it, the same was true with the default mode network and other studies have suggested this as well, is that when we're in there trying to orchestrate things, it's like putting our foot on the brake. We're not actually doing ourselves a favor. You know, it's kind of like jumping in there going, look at me, look at me. And our brain's like, shut up. I got some work to do here. You know, just let me, let me be. So, the self-reference tends to get in the way of things. And if we look at meditation practices, it's about identifying that you know, in Theravada, they talk about anatta, this no self element to experience, and that we kind of have this illusion that we're we're the one orchestrating the experience, when in fact our experience is probably orchestrating itself, and we're coming in about half a second later, thinking that we did it. So, this brain region was getting deactivated in experienced meditators, and we took it a next step where we could link up subjective experience with brain activity using real-time neurofeedback. And first we started with this with fMRI and then with EEG. And we're finding that it turns out that it's that contracted quality of experience that correlates with increased activity in the posterior cingulate cortex. And that expanded quality of experience during meditation or curiosity or kindness that corresponds with decreased activity in that brain region. So we kind of had this marker and not to say it's just this one brain region. The brain is very complex. We don't know much about it. But this may be a neural marker, at least a, an indicator of when we're getting caught up in our experience versus when we're letting go. And so that to us was very interesting, but also potentially helpful in terms of providing a mental mirror for moments when we think we might be doing a good job of meditating, like I thought I was doing, and really looking to see, you know, am I just contracting down to an, into a tight little ball of anxiety and and stress when I'm trying to force myself to concentrate on my breath or whatever. Right. There's an interesting parallel here. Are you familiar with the research of Robin Carhart-Harris at Imperial College London that he's been doing on psilocybin and LSD with the default mode network? Yeah, I know Robin. And it's so funny because he published, we published our first big finding on on meditators in 2011 and like two months later uh, he published a paper in the same journal uh, the proceedings of national academy of sciences on his using his first psilocybin experiments and i called him up immediately and said i this cannot be a coincidence and he said no i don't think it's a coincidence and that actually got me very interested in and 
talking to Roland Griffiths, who's really the amazing researcher here in the U.S. at Hopkins doing a bunch of work with psilocybin. And we became friends and, you know, very interested in looking at all these parallels. So, I think of psilocybin as like throwing a hand grenade in your brain and blowing up the self. <laughs> and it can really give us a, a really solid taste of what selflessness, you know, or the, the an experience of, you know, ego dissolution or however Robin talks about it is or feels like. And I see meditation as a way to systematically help us train ourselves to tap into that all the time. So, the two, I think, are parallel and, and even potentially synergistic. And I think Roland is doing some of those experiments now. Yeah, I'm glad you brought up Roland because he's not only doing very interesting work with psilocybin in it in advanced meditators, but he's also released this study recently, I'm sure you're familiar with, on psilocybin and nicotine. And the results are just like your mindfulness research, many multiples more significant than the gold standard. So, what once again, kind of what do you make of this interesting parallel between, you know, psychedelics and, and meditation, not only in the realm of, I guess, the brain and the sense of self, but also how addiction works. I like Robin Carhart Harris's theory on this and actually just um, finished reading Michael Pollan's book. What's it? What is it called? How to change your mind, I think. Yeah, I'm, it's on my list. For sure. Yeah, it's, it's a great book. And, and Michael actually had come and uh, to visit our lab and uh, we hooked him up to our neurofeedback device. Cool. And uh, he talks a little bit about that at the end of the book, which was interesting because most of the book was about psychedelics. But Michael does a great job of really distilling Robin's, um, the essence of, of Robin's theory. And he talks about entropy. And, you know, the mind is trying to, you know, find these low entropy states because our mind is really, it's a prediction machine. It's look, it's trying to predict the future and the more certain it can be, you know, the more likely it is to survive. Well, you know, this world is constantly changing. And so our minds can kind of get into these uh, energetic nadirs where they get stuck and addiction may be one of those, you know, low entropy states where, you know, it's kind of stuck in a habit loop, so to speak. And the way that, if I'm understanding this correctly, the way that Robin describes this is that these psychedelics help move us, you know, kind of increase the energy so that we can kind of get unstuck and we can start to see new ways of being. And, you know, in a very simplistic way, it may help kind of restart this, reboot the system where our minds can kind of get out of those old ruts and not just reboot it, but help help them see very different ways of being. And so, some of the folks from Roland's studies, you know, talk about just seeing how little smoking was in the vastness of the universe. And so, they're like, oh, why would I smoke? And they quit smoking. Now, these are anecdotes, but it it kind of speaks to Robin's theory around you know, when we can make these new connections and probably are literally making new connections in the brain, that can help us see beyond, if you think of it as a very small sense of self as being addicted to a certain substance, whether it's nicotine or alcohol or whatever. And I think that is a very interesting and plausible hypothesis. Certainly fits with, you know, my, I've been working, you know, I'm an addiction psychiatrist. I've been doing this work with patients for, 
you know, over a decade and I haven't been doing psilocybin work with them, but just the way that they're really, really stuck in their ruts and they just can't see, you know, it's like the, the hole is too deep for them to see over the edge anymore. So if psilocybin kind of blasts them out of the hole, (laughs) they might land somewhere else. (laughs) Right. I've noticed the same thing in terms of language that people use. And I've talked about it quite a bit on this show, including with one guest, Rachel Harris, who's a psychiatrist who's written a book called Listening to Ayahuasca. And we talked about a lot of the language people use with ayahuasca, you know, to describe the ayahuasca experience. And I would say a very similar thing with Ibogaine. And that's very notable because both of those psychedelics are known to be particularly effective for addictions, especially from what I hear, Ibogaine is very effective for opioid addictions. And people really describe the experiences. I can say it from personal experience with ayahuasca, but not Ibogaine, that there is really a feeling of reprogramming. Like your body is just, your mind and body is just totally being reprogrammed. And so I definitely hear that as well in terms of what Robin's describing. It it seems to be very common, sort of the language that people use. And I think it is very telling. Yeah, there's a lot of wisdom in those chemicals, huh? (laughs) For sure. You know, we're only beginning, you know, to tap into it. One idea I think that Roland is talking about, and I hope I'm not misquoting him here, but I, I believe he said there... He was asked with, I think it was the nicotine study, you know, what is it that made it effective? Was it the mystical experience or, you know, was it something else? And he basically seemed to suggest that there was something about the mystical experience itself that was healing. And it's a very Jungian idea, I think, in a lot of ways. You know, sort of Jung talked about encounters with the numinous. And I know talking about Jung isn't the most popular thing when we're talking about fMRI scans and and that may be outside of your comfort zone. But I'm just sort of curious. (laughs) I don't know much about it. Yeah. He seemed like a pretty smart guy, but I just, I've not undergone formal analytic training myself. But it, it brings up this, you know, what, the, the image that it brings up for me is these descriptions of uh, astronauts who have had the great fortune of going into outer space and then looking at the Earth. And it kind of gives them this this perspective of how small we are in the vastness of the universe. And some have described that in itself as a mystical experience. And you know, I, my sense is that these things can help us see how small our mind is or our, our, you know, habit patterns around self. And when we see how small that is relative to something else, we just haven't had anything to compare it to yet. You know, it literally blows our mind. And, you know, it's that I could see as tremendously transformative in terms of changing what seems like a big problem and is a big problem for, you know, many or most of my patients uh, into, you know, wow, there's, there is, I'm just part of this greater vastness. And there's, I don't know what that does, Mm -hmm. but I could see that really helping to transform somebody's life. It's fascinating. Well, thank you for indulging my psychedelic tangent. 
the, the, the <laughs> parallels with the research really is, is too uncanny. So I'm, I'm glad you started to go there as well. You know, it does invite sort of the question, you know, how can mindfulness work synergistically with some other practices? And it doesn't even have to be a technique or a practice. It can be, you know, whether it's a 12-step program or community, you know, what is the role of mindfulness in terms of working synergistically with, with other as part of a larger framework within addiction? And in your experience, what is really helpful and, you know, what's sort of more mixed in terms of the research? I see, and I, you know, other folks may differ with me on this, but I see mindfulness is really helping us understand you know, how our minds work, the inner workings of our minds. And so it's about, or Vipassana literally translated, I think means seeing clearly. So when we can see that cause and effect very clearly, you know, what's the habitual behavior that we have and what's the effect of that behavior. When we can see that clearly, it helps us to change behavior. And so I could see mindfulness being very synergistic with many other forms of addiction treatment. So, for example, well, there, there are many parallels with 12 steps in particular, but there are also community elements in a lot of treatments. And I think community is essential. So, as we start to learn how our minds work, we can that can be synergistic with forming connection with others in community, just as one example. But if we don't understand how our minds work, it's kind of like playing with a black box. And, you know, it's like, oh, here's a switch on this side. And I just flick it a couple of times and it either turns on or doesn't turn on. And, you know, if it doesn't turn on, well, I'm kind of stuck. And so, you know, being in a community might help it turn on a little bit more, but it's not going to consistently do it. So, if we can understand how our minds work, then we're going to be able to utilize all these other resources even more effectively. I guess to, to sort of reverse it, you know, what do you think if someone had mindfulness and they were using it effectively, but they didn't have community, you know, cause I've seen, uh, you know, people talk about the impact of sort of community being essential, not only for mental health, but also for longevity. And there's a real parallel with the Buddha's teaching as well, where he talked, you know, about the Sangha being the most important of the three jewels, you know, I'm just curious if you've, you've, yeah. whether it's seen that in your research or your personal experience, if your patients, if you can talk about the relationship between those two. Yeah. And I'm thinking, I think there was this sutta where Ananda comes to the Buddha and says, Oh, it's half of the holy life, you know, and the Buddha says, don't say that. Don't say that Ananda. It is the whole of the holy life, you know, right. That's what I was thinking. Of. Friends. <laughs> yeah. It's a beautiful, beautiful, beautiful sutta. So, I would say, you know, on a population level that community is essential, but, you know, populations, statistics are good for populations, but not for individuals. And so, I wouldn't say for everybody, this is true, but I would say in general, we seem to be social creatures. And in general, absolutely, I think community is critical. And I think it, this makes sense where if we're stuck in an addiction, that becomes that all-consuming, you know, relationship. And we lose our connection with others. We lose our connection with ourselves even because it's just connection with the bottle or the cigarette or the needle or whatever. 
So when we start to see beyond that, and I think this is where mindfulness can help, and this is also where community is essential, is starting to reform those bonds. And even looking from a reward-based learning standpoint, it feels good to be connected with others. It feels good to be connected with ourselves. And so that connection becomes that, you know, bigger, better offer than the isolation that comes with addiction itself. And so even from a behavior, you know, a cognitive behavioral standpoint and from a neural reward learning standpoint, that makes sense too. You know, well, I'm curious, and actually I, I realize I, I kind of maybe took this for granted earlier, but it might be worth just sort of clarifying for people in the audience who maybe haven't read a lot about addiction research or are familiar with the field. Do you know, in terms of how addiction works on the brain, you know, the neurocircuitry, you know, is the in what ways is being addicted to a behavior like sex or gambling um similar to or different from addiction to a substance like alcohol or nicotine or heroin? What are the similarities and the differences? I will focus on relevant uh, similarities because I think this is where we can learn the most. Uh, All of these things activate uh, reward circuitry. You know, there's this People hear dopamine, dopamine, dopamine. Uh, Dopamine gets spritzed into the nucleus accumbens, whether it's cigarettes or cocaine or alcohol or even Facebook. (laughs) Especially (laughs) Instagram. Instagram. There's an Instagram study showing this. Yeah. So that happens. And also the posterior cingulate cortex gets activated with, you know, people who have various substance use disorders and they, you know, they're shown paraphernalia. So cocaine, nicotine, gambling, and even uh, chocolate. You know, one of my friends, Dana Small, she's a uh, food researcher at Yale. Uh, She did this great study for a PhD thesis where she put people in a PET scanner and she fed them chocolate. And they're like, this is awesome. I'm getting paid to eat chocolate. (laughs) And she would just have them rate, you know, how good does this chocolate taste? And they'd be like 10 out of 10. You know, like I said, you're not only feeding me chocolate, you're letting me choose my favorite chocolate. And she would keep feeding them and feeding them. And over time, you know, it'd go, the rating would go down and down and they'd be like, you know, did you get permission to do this study? You know, and, you know, to the point where they're like, this is awful. This is horrible. I hate science. Get me out of here. But interestingly, the posterior cingulate was the only part of the brain that was activated both when they loved the chocolate and when they hated the chocolate. It was the same substance. But here we're seeing back to operant conditioning, back to dependent origination, that there's this love and hate, I want more and I want less, that correlates with this brain activity. And so, you know, from an addiction standpoint, all of these things start to line up pretty nicely where we see you know, this push and pull from a neural perspective, we see this line up with addiction, whether it's alcohol or cocaine or chocolate or, you know, Facebook. Yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah, thank you for kind of outlining that. So you've told us a bit about what your your research lab has found the discoveries in, in recent years. I'm kind of wondering what is sort of uncharted territory? What 
areas in this field are particularly promising for research that you hope to tackle? It's a good question. I'm very pragmatically focused. So a lot of I try to have all the work that I do have a aim toward helping people in the sense that I mean not that other researchers don't, but I'm just thinking in terms of like if I do a study, I want to see how I can specifically as quickly as possible get to that becoming something that's going to be helpful. So that's why we develop these app-based trainings so we can get them out there. That's why we do this neurofeedback research so we can see, you know, what neurofeedback is going to be helpful for the field because that field is is very young even though it's been around for a long time. I don't I'm not sure that the there's a lot of stuff out there commercially and I'm not sure that there's very much of it that that I would recommend that folks jump in there and spend money on yet. So I think down the road, it's about really refining the processes, both in terms of neurofeedback and helping provide a very accurate mental mirror, um, because that's how humans learn. And, you know, now we have the technological capabilities to provide feedback without the middleman, without us trying to explain our experience to our teacher and then our teacher try to understand it and then try to give us advice. And then we try to understand their advice. You know, there's that a lot can get lost in translation there. Well, if you jump right to the brain, as long as we've got accurate targets and we can give accurate feedback from those accurate targets, that could be tremendously helpful. And so, you know, we've been doing research along those lines to just start to test out these implementation waters and then also figure out the best way to deliver it. There are a lot of pragmatics that go into how do you give feedback? It's not just having an accurate signal. It's about having a good user experience as part of that. So that's one of the pieces we're looking at. And another from a clinical standpoint is how do we develop and deliver evidence-based and theory-based mindfulness training for specific maladies. Like, you know, I've mentioned eating and anxiety. And down the road, we hope to develop more digital therapeutics that are going to help as they go in through a specific door of a pain point, you know, as compared to, you know, there are lots of meditation apps out there and lots of them that are good. We're kind of taking a different approach to that around, you know, can we take a specific pain point? Can we understand it mechanistically? Can we deliver a targeted mechanistically based training? And can we get, you know, really great efficacy in that way? And I think we, you know, we've got some pretty promising results so far, but I feel like we're just at the beginning of really, you know, blasting off in terms of having, you know, user experience that's really optimal and, you know, all the pragmatics that go along with that. It's not just about, you know, if you build a gym, but nobody goes to the gym, you've wasted your time. And I think there's, there are parallels here as well. Are we starting to see more mindfulness? Because I think your mindfulness division, was it the first one at a hospital? Is that correct? Is that right? Yes. The division of mindfulness at UMass was the first in a medical institution. So... I think we're starting to see more legitimacy, you know, in medical institutions. And I think that's good to see. You know, I think the evidence base is building enough to the point where people are not thinking this is, you know, rainbows and unicorns, as, as Dan Harris likes to say. <laughs> this is really about evidence-based stuff. And I'm not saying that everything out there is evidence-based or great, 
But I think if we really all try to band together and take that approach, then it's going to help move the field further, faster without as many missteps. There are always going to be missteps. But if we, that's how science works in general is, you know, oh, dead end. Okay, turn around. Right. Have, have we started to see more mindfulness research centers at other medical institutions since years opened? Certainly, the Center for Mindfulness at UMass was the you know the first one. It was uh, forty years ago was when we started. There have been a number of other centers that have opened up. You know, Brown University just opened up a mindfulness center, oh, and you know it's great to see that in an Ivy League institution. And there are other groups as well. You know, Richie Davidson is probably the most well known contemplative studies researcher. I guess I was I was familiar with Richie Davidson. I guess I, w- I was thinking specifically mindfulness and addiction. I don't know if Richie... With regard to addiction, there really not many folks are doing that work. Well, it's an exciting field and there holds a lot of promise and you've already demonstrated that. So thank you so much for the work that you're doing. And I'm conscious of your time, but I want to give you an opportunity before we part ways to tell people about where they can find you or any of those exciting apps uh, you have coming out or any other talks or anything else you'd like to let people know about. Thanks. They can go to my completely self-referential website (laughs) uh, called judsonbrewer.com or they can check out our apps. You know, there's the Unwinding Anxiety app. The website's just unwindinganxiety.com. The eating app is the app is called Eat right now, and the website's goeatrightnow.com. And if they're trying to quit smoking, the smoking app's called uh, Craving to Quit. So, cravingtoquit.com. And then, of course, if they have insomnia, I have a book that might cure that. And what's that <laughs> no. book called? Hopefully, it's not that boring. It's called The Craving Mind from Cigarettes to Smartphones to Love Why We Get Hooked and How We Can Break Bad Habits. And that actually, you know, links in my own journey with meditation, with my clinical practice, and and with all the neuroscience uh, that you and I talked about this evening in in a bit more detail. Excellent. And they can find that on Amazon, I'm sure. Yes, probably anywhere books are sold, but certainly on Amazon. Okay. Excellent. Well, we'll include those in the show notes as well. But thank you again for your time, Judson. This has been a fascinating conversation, and I really enjoyed it. And I'm sure our listeners will as well. Thank you.